0: This episode is sponsored by our upcoming Day on Conscious Relationships online conference taking place on the 24th of April, 2022. This event will explore how to leverage insights from attachment theory, neurobiology, and behavioral science to become aware of and break the unconscious relationship patterns from your past so that you can start thriving in this area of your life. We'll have talks from three speakers on why secure relating is a skill that can be learned, and how to heal the attachment wounds from your past to create deep and lasting relationships in the present. That's from Alan Robarge. The second talk will be from Terry Real, and this is going to be on a science-based skill set for creating lasting intimacy. And the final talk will be from Logan Yuri, and it's going to be on how to use the latest behavioral science to find, build, and keep love. By attending live, you can interact with the speakers in the Q&A sessions connect with like-minded participants during the conference, get CPD certification and lifetime access to the recordings from the sessions. As a listener of this podcast, you can get a discount on your ticket if you go to bit.ly forward slash CR TWU and use the discount code POD when registering. That's P-O-D, all one word, when registering. back to our third and final session today. I'm here with uh, our speaker, Professor Mark Solms from the Univers- University of Cape Town. So Mark is best known for his discovery of the four brain mechanisms of dreaming and for his pioneering integration of psychoanalytic theories and methods with those of modern neuroscience. He holds the chair of neuropsychology at the University of Cape Town and Groot Schur Hospital. His other positions have included honorary lecture in neurosurgery at at St. Bartholomew's and the Royal London London School of Medicine, Director of the International Neuropsychoanalysis Centre in London, and Director of the Arnold Pfeffer Centre for Neuropsychoanalysis at the New York Psychoanalytic Institute. Professor Somm's books include Clinical Studies in Neuropsychoanalysis, The Brain and the Inner World. And most recently, Hidden Spring, A Journey to the Source of Consciousness, which was published earlier this year and which he's going to give a talk on today. So you can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark underscore Psalms. And Mark, whenever you're ready, it's it's great to have you here and just get started. Thank you. Thanks, Niall. It's great to be here.
1: Um, I must say I hadn't realized there were three sessions today, so I hope that you you still have bandwidth for me. There you have my title, um, as Niall has just said. Um, and he has, a, he has a quotation from uh, a very nice physicist named Paul Davies. Uh, but really, I could have quoted any, any number of uh, natural scientists today. They all say much the same thing. Basically, that consciousness is the number one problem of science. Uh, Paul Davies goes further and says, of existence even. Um, this all began our current uh, preoccupation with the problem of consciousness. Uh, with this paper published by David Chalmers in 1995, where he coined the term, the hard problem. Uh, and I thought uh, we should begin by by quoting Chalmers um, at a little bit of length. He says, it's undeniable that some organisms are subjects of experience, but the question of how it is that these systems are subjects of experience is perplexing. Why is it that when our cognitive systems engage in visual and auditory information processing, we have visual or auditory experience, the quality of deep blue, the sensation of middle C? How can we explain why there is something it is like to entertain a mental image or experience an emotion? It's widely agreed that, we, that experience arises from a physical basis, but we've no good explanation of how and why it so arises. So there you have the hard problem, uh, uh, as formulated by David Chalmers. Um, Chalmers wasn't the first philosopher uh, to to ponder this thing, of course, but he draws heavily uh, on uh, Tom Nagel's paper from 1974, um, the, 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 the title of which was, What is it like to be a bat? Um, and there, uh, uh, Nagel uses that phrase of something that it is like, which is what what uh, Chalmers was was referring to a moment ago. Where where does this something it is likeness come from? Why is there something it is like to be um, an information processing system uh, like the brain? Uh, Nagel said, an organism has conscious mental states if and only if there is something that it is like to be that organism, something it's like for the organism. And he goes on a little later to say, if we acknowledge that a physical theory of mind must account for the subjective character of experience, we must admit that no presently available conception gives us a clue about how this could be done. So um, this is what I aim to do in my presentation brief as it is today is to give you a clue uh, about how this could be done. So here's the problem, or at least one way of putting it, uh, the problem that that we're addressing. Uh, paraphrasing Chalmers and Nagel. Why and how is there something it is like to be an organism, something it's like for the organism? Now, uh, as, I, as I said when I quoted Paul Davies at the outset, this is the number one problem of science, um, and to try and pack an answer or even a clue in the direction of an answer um, into just an hour's uh, at, at time, Uh, is is a sort of impossible task. So I thought that what I would do is give you a kind of impressionistic introduction to the way in which I uh, am approaching this problem. And I'm going to do so via a series of case studies, I'm going to uh, uh, very briefly uh, give you vignettes uh, from uh, six um, neurological cases. Here is the first one. Um, The chap on the left, is my brother his name's lee and the baby on the right is me Uh, some four and a half years after this photograph was taken uh, my brother clambered onto the roof of a yacht clubhouse uh, while my parents were yachting Um, and uh, unfortunately he tripped and fell uh, from the roof uh, three stories onto his head onto the the pavement below uh, he sustained an uh, intracerebral hemorrhage um, in in the right frontal lobe, uh, and also, uh, as you can see on the scan here, the the, the the site of the hemorrhage is circled. The arrows point to um, to, to other areas of damage. He survived. Uh, uh, he was he was flown um, to uh, to a a, a a major hospital um, where where he was well looked after. Um, he w- he came back home a few weeks later, he looked for all the world uh, like my same old brother, uh, apart from the fact that he had to wear a helmet to protect his fractured skull, uh, but he was not my same brother. He was a different person um, entirely. Uh, and it was in the most uncanny experience uh, at the age of four and a half to, to uh, be confronted by This fact, which then became the central uh, um, uh, preoccupation of my intellectual life, this fact that we are somehow our brains. Uh, The brain, the organ that was damaged in my brother's case, somehow embodied who he is, who he was. Um, And I'm I'm pretty sure, although I didn't there and then decide I I want to study uh, the brain, I'm pretty sure, it's pretty obvious uh, that that is why, uh, some 14 years later, uh, that's what I did. Um, And I trained in the field of neuropsychology. Um, Neuropsychology, uh, when I trained, which was in uh, the the mid-1980s, or at least that's when I qualified, um, it it was, uh, we, we spoke of higher cortical functions. That was the domain of neuropsychology. Uh, neurologists studied uh, the brain stem, uh, you know, bodily functions, uh, reflexes, uh, but the higher functions of the cortex was the domain of neuropsychologists. Um, and we learned all sorts of things about the functions of the cortex. Uh, I've, I've put on the screen here one uh, example from roughly that time. Uh, there you see on the left in purple uh, the visual cortex um, and on the right you see, Um, an information flow chart uh, of of, of how we understood things um, a few years after I qualified, uh, how we understood how well, in what detail, we understood uh, how visual information processing um, proceeds uh, in the uh, cortex. What puzzled me, however, bearing in mind what it was that had motivated me albeit unconsciously, what had motivated me uh, to study neuropsychology, namely uh, the, the burning uh, need to understand how it can be that somehow uh, our very selves um, are bound up with uh, this bodily organ. Um, I was rather frustrated by what I was learning about these information flowcharts, uh, and I asked my professors, but where is the sentient subject of the mind? the subject that experiences um, all this information processing. Um, and around that time, uh, I read uh, this wonderful book by Oliver Sacks. In fact, I entered into a correspondence with him from the moment I read that book um, and until he died. We, ha- we, we uh, it was clear we saw things the same way. What he wrote was neuropsychology, like classical neurology, aims to be entirely objective and its great power and its is coming from just this. But a living creature, and especially a human being, is first and last active, a subject, not an object. It's precisely the subject, the living eye, which is being excluded. Neuropsychology is admirable, but it excludes the psyche. It excludes the experiencing active living eye. That, that sentence, neuropsychology is admirable, but it excludes the psyche captured exactly uh, my my, uh, disappointment uh, with the field uh, that I was uh, being introduced uh, into. That book, by the way, was called A Leg to Stand On, published in 1984. And so, you know, I think that the way Chalmers put things um, about why is there something it is like to experience all this information processing, um, I, 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 I get it. I understand where Chalmers is coming from. So here's Chalmers again, to make the point. He says, the easy problems are easy precisely because they concern the explanation of cognitive abilities and functions. To explain a cognitive function, and, and, and uh, we need only specify a mechanism uh, that can perform the function by mechanism. Bearing, uh, you know, he has in mind the sort of things I've just showed you about visual information processing. Says the methods of cognitive science are well suited for this sort of explanation, and so are well suited to the easy problems of consciousness. By contrast, the hard problem is hard precisely because it's not a problem about the performance of functions. The problem persists even when the performance of all the relevant functions is explained. What makes the hard problem hard and almost unique is that it goes beyond problems about the performance of functions. To see this, note that even when we've explained the performance of all the cognitive and behavioral functions in the vicinity of experience, they may still remain a further unanswered question. Why is the performance of these functions accompanied by experience? The simple explanation of the functions leaves this question open. Why doesn't all this information processing go on in the dark, free of any inner feel? Bear in mind, Computers have visual information processing. Uh, they have memory, uh, they have executive functions, etc. Uh, why is it uh, that in our cases it's we experience it, it feels like something. Uh, to get a sense of the gravity of the problem that traumas uh, is, is, is um, conveying here, uh, I want to um, cite another philosopher, Frank Jackson, Um, who articulated what has come to be known as the knowledge argument, um, which concerns a visual neuroscientist named Mary. Uh, I'm going to slightly simplify the argument for the sake of time. Um, Jackson asks us to imagine uh, Mary, uh, who is an outstanding visual neuroscientist who knows everything there is to know about the functional mechanisms of visual information processing. But Mary is blind. She has never experienced vision. She knows all about the physics of light waves impinging on the photosensitive rods and cones of the retina and how uh, those light waves are transduced into nerve impulses and how they're propagated uh, along the optic nerve via the lateral geniculate body to the visual cortex, where all of that uh, incredible information processing goes on that I showed you in the slide um, earlier. Um, and yet, Uh, As I said, despite her knowing all of this about the functions of uh, the mechanisms uh, of visual information processing, she has never experienced what it is like to see. And then one day, thanks be to God, the gift of sight is bestowed upon her. And for the first time in her life, uh, Mary experiences what it's like to see things like red and blue. Uh, the the, the actual qualities of visual experience. And Jackson's point is that at this moment, Mary will learn something utterly new about vision, something which was not accounted for by her mechanistic knowledge. Uh, Everything she knew about the physics and physiology and information processing mechanics um, of vision did not prepare her for, uh, did not Uh, uh, require her to understand anything about what visual experience is like. And the alarming consequence uh, that many people come to, um, Jackson included, uh, is that therefore experience, the actual stuff of consciousness, the subjective qualia um, of of, of visual, um, of of, of, of what it is like to see uh, things like this somehow exist outside of our natural scientific account, our mechanistic account, our causal uh, account um, of of the functions uh, of uh, of the brain, uh, which implies that consciousness exists in some sort of parallel universe, and that it cannot be accounted for uh, in terms of the ordinary laws of physical science. That's the seriousness of the problem encapsulated in this a second way of formulating the problem we're addressing here. Uh, Here, I'm not paraphrasing, but rather quoting Chalmers, uh, when he says, why is the performance of these functions accompanied by experience? Why doesn't all this information processing go on in the dark, free of any inner field? So keep these questions open, the ones I've put in big letters, um, because remember, these are the questions that I'm that I'm addressing with you in my talk today. The problem is made uh, even more serious by the discovery in the decade following my qualification um, in 1985. Uh, By by 1995, um, uh, Kilström's this is a famous review article, this is, uh, I could again, cite any number of such articles, but his title says it all. Uh, Reviewing the literature, he says, uh, he he summarises his review with the words, perception without awareness of what is perceived, learning without awareness of what is learnt by the mid 1990s, uh, we had uh, 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 unequivocally um, concluded that in fact, um, all of this information processing that the cortex does can go on in the dark. In fact, it mostly does go on in the dark, Uh, that vision uh, proceeds perfectly uh, adequately without conscious experience. Uh, And not only vision, uh, all of perception, uh, all of cognition Everything that the cortex does, apart from one thing, which I'm leading up to, everything that the cortex does, it can do unconsciously. Um, I don't have time to go into the details, but I'll just say, for example, uh, you can read with comprehension unconsciously. In other words, uh, with visual information can be flashed to your cortex so briefly that you don't realize you've seen anything at all. That information is written um, material, um, which you uh, are in your subsequent behavior is influenced by. Therefore, it shows that even though you've no conscious awareness of doing so, your cortex can read and understand uh, and and uh, you you can be you, your behavior can be influenced accordingly without any conscious awareness so the question really does arise uh, why doesn't uh, why what is the experiencing for it doesn't seem to do anything it doesn't seem to be part and parcel um, of as i said earlier our ordinary mechanistic causal account um, of how nature works um so again i say to you charm as it seems to me very much has a point. Uh, Now let me introduce the second of my six cases. Um, I said, I asked my professors when I was a student, uh, when they taught us about all this information processing that goes on in the cortex, I asked them, but where is the sentient subject? Where is the where is the being of the mind that experiences all this information processing. And I told you, um, those days, uh, well, I, well, I was just advised not to ask questions like that, uh, that they were bad for your career. But as the century proceeded, uh, uh, by the 1990s, there was an answer, a standard answer was, well, it all comes together in the prefrontal lobes. Uh, the the posterior cortices, um, the uh, 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 where all this information um, is received and processed and stored um, is re-represented in the part of the brain uh, uh, coloured red here, uh, the prefrontal cortex, a sort of superstructure over uh, the the information processing modules of the cortex, um, where um, where it all comes together uh, and is re-represented to the subject of the mind, the subject of the mind. Not to put too fine a point on it. Uh, was said to reside in the prefrontal lobes. So I want to show you uh, as my second case, uh, what happens when your prefrontal lobes are removed entirely. Let's test whether uh, the subject of the mind, uh, the experiencing subject uh, is located in the prefrontal cortex. Uh, This is my patient W. Um, I won't go into all the uh, medical details, but basically he sustained a brain hemorrhage, subarachnoid hemorrhage, Uh, in his frontal lobes, which required surgery, which didn't go well, required further surgery, which didn't go well, uh, which led to infections, uh, which uh, were were chronic. And in the end, uh, as you can see on the scan, uh, well, on the two scans here, in the end, he was left with no prefrontal lobes whatsoever. So uh, this is rare. So um, uh, I explained to uh, patient W Uh, that, according to my colleagues, uh, he should have no conscious, subjective uh, sense of self Uh, and and, and asked him, does he have a sense of self? And he said, Yes, of course, he does. So I I asked him to indulge me so that uh, I could demonstrate this to my colleagues. I said, Are you consciously aware of your thoughts? He says, Yes, of course I am. So um, I told him, I wanted him to picture something in his mind's eye. Um, in in this way, making use of this uh, conscious selfhood of his. I wanted him as a self to observe some information processing going on in his mind. I asked him to imagine two dogs and one chicken. Uh, Then I said, Do you see them in your mind's eye? And he said, Yes. I said, Now tell me, how many legs do you see in total? You can see the point, uh, this would demonstrate he's able to see these two dogs and one chicken uh, if he's able to count the legs. It's not the sort of thing you have rote knowledge of, you know, who's ever asked you to count the number of legs uh, that, that you see when you're looking at two dogs and one chicken. Um, and so uh, he did so and he answered eight. I was crestfallen. I said eight and he retorted, yes, the dogs eat the chicken. So, uh, I, I, it's perhaps not the best joke in the world, but I hope you'll agree with me that there's somebody home uh, in, in the case of patient W. Uh, he's able to not only see uh, uh, with his mind's eye and, and, and comment on doing so, but even to crack jokes about it. Um, so, the prefrontal cortex is the one place in the cortex where the subject of the mind is supposed to reside. Uh, the other theory, um, which, which sort of came to prominence early uh, in, in, in our century, uh, is attributable to Bud Craig. Um, and his view was that the insula, which I'm now highlighting on the screen, this is where um, the subject of the mind, the self, um, uh, resides in the cortex, uh, that this, this part of the cortex represents um, the, the, uh, the bodily self. Um, It it feels the state of the body and represents the state of the body uh, in consciousness, and this is the the, the fundamental basis of selfhood. Uh, My colleague Antonio Damasio uh, had a patient uh, like mine who had no prefrontal lobes. uh, Damasio's patient B uh, had no insula, uh, absolutely destroyed by a viral disease, a virus named herpes simplex. So herpes simplex encephalitis, as you can see on these scans, left patient B with absolutely no insula. Uh, I'm not gonna read this whole long interview. I'll just take you right down to the bottom uh, where Damasio says, what if I were to tell you that, that you are aware that I am aware? And patient B says, I would say you're right. Damasio says, you're aware that I'm aware. And patient says, I'm aware that you're aware that I'm aware. So uh, again, it's a little bit of a joke, um, but the important thing is there's clearly somebody there. And please note all the references to I. Uh, I would say you're right. I am aware that you are aware that I am aware. There's a self there uh, in these two cases. These two very extreme cases where the parts of the cortex which are supposed to be uh, the seat of the sentient subject are absolutely obliterated. But of course, there is still quite a lot of cortex left intact in these cases. Uh, uh, Perhaps the remaining cortex uh, is where uh, the consciousness shifts to the remaining cortex. And in this way, uh, these patients are still uh, able to experience uh, their sentient selfhood. What would happen if the cortex as a whole uh, was was, uh, removed from the picture, the whole of the cortex? Uh, Well, uh, here is a case. who was born with no cortex. Um, The dark area inside of the cranium on these scans is where her cortex should be, but instead all there is is cerebrospinal fluid. She has an intact brain stem, uh, that tissue you see in the bottom half of her cranium and going down uh, into her spinal cord, uh, that is her brain stem, uh, but she has absolutely no cortex. Uh, This condition is called hydranencephaly. Now here's the girl in question. She's the one on the right. Uh, You can see she's awake. She's conscious in the sense that she goes to sleep at night and wakes up in the morning. Uh, She actually also happens to have absence seizures where she loses consciousness and regains it. Uh, Her parents can tell you she's gone, she's back again. Uh, But even more impressive than that is look at what happens when her baby brother is placed on her lap. Uh, She responds, she responds emotionally. So patients with absolutely no cortex are conscious, not only in the sense um, that they are awake, uh, that they're not in a coma, but they are responsive and they are emotionally responsive. Um, She's not a rarity, that girl that I just showed you. Here's another such patient with absolutely no cortex. Uh, These kids uh, quite generally uh, display the features that I've just told you about. Here's a summary by Bjorn Merker. I'm not going to read you the whole summary. Uh, he studied many of these children. Um, and the words I've highlighted show uh, that they are conscious, that they are responsive, emotionally responsive. And most important to talk of all uh, is this second last line uh, where Merkel observes that, that, that these emotional responses are situationally appropriate. So they show a wide range of emotional responses. They giggle, they laugh. Uh, they, they smile, uh, they fuss, they cry, uh, they show aversion, etc. and they do so uh, where you would have expected them to do so. In other words, if you tickle them, they giggle, if you frustrate them, uh, they arch their backs uh, and, and, uh, uh, and, and express frustration uh, and, and so on. So uh, this is a surprise. Um, you can remove large swathes of cortex The patients say that they are conscious. Uh, You can remove cortex in its entirety. Uh, These patients can't say that they're conscious, but all the evidence suggests that they are. These kids, as I said, have absolutely no cortex. Um, Now, uh, this area that's marked on the screen here in purple, in the brain stem, where the arrow points toward uh, these purple structures, um, they are called the reticular activating system. They were discovered some decades ago, and it was a great surprise to discover that damage to these structures leads to an absolute obliteration of consciousness in sharp contrast to, as I've just showed showed you, in sharp contrast to what happens when you damage the cortex. So, uh, in the case of those two little girls that I showed you, they have absolutely no cortex and they're patently conscious, and yet, if you damage just two cubic millimeters of a part of the reticular activating system called the parabrachial region, reliably damage the size of a match head in this part of the brain obliterates consciousness entirely. This is a coma-specific region of the brain. So um, uh, why have we been looking to the cortex uh, in our our quest to find uh, the physical basis of consciousness? Uh, I've showed you that the cortex is able to perform all of its functions unconsciously. Uh, I've showed you that you can remove large swathes of cortex uh, and consciousness persists. Uh, And now I've showed you that the opposite applies to the brain stem. The reason why, when it was first discovered, the reticular activating system, uh, we didn't uh, change our focus away from the cortex was because we we made the uh, mistaken assumption that the reticular activating system is merely a power supply. It's a sort of, you know, if you, if you want to watch television, uh, you have to plug it in. That doesn't mean that the power source uh, at the wall socket is where television itself uh, is actually produced. It's just a necessary prerequisite that the television set in order to do its televisual thing uh, has to be powered up. That's what we thought the reticular activating system does. And that's why uh, the the pictures I've just showed you of these little kids with no cortex is so terribly important. Uh, They do not only show a power supply. In other words, it's not uh, we recognized since the reticular activating system was discovered that it powers up the cortex, Uh, it is this necessary prerequisite, it activates the cortex. But we thought the cortex was where the contents and the qualities of consciousness are generated. Just as the television set itself uh, actually uh, conveys the images and the sounds, the programming, uh, we don't expect the programming to be altered by, uh, if you interrupt the power supply, the whole thing switches off like a coma, Uh, but you can't change the content and the quality of the programming by manipulating uh, the uh, power supply. And what I've just showed you, uh, in the case of those kids, is that their consciousness is not just a blank wakefulness, that their consciousness has a content, uh, and it has a quality. And that content and quality is what we call affect, feelings, pleasant, pleasant and unpleasant feelings. And so it's not just a power supply, uh, this, this Font, the source, this necessary prerequisite for all cortical consciousness in the brainstem has a content and a quality of its own. But how do we know that these kids experience anything at all? They look as if they do. But of course, you can't tell they can't report as the other two patients I just showed you. Um, the, the patient with no prefrontal cortex and the patient with no insula they told us they're still there. There's something it is like to be them. Uh, But those little kids couldn't tell us because they have no cortex, and cortex is indeed responsible for language information processing. So it looks as if they're feeling something, they behave as if they're feeling something, but how can we know for sure? Uh, Well, the way we answer questions like that in science is we look for multiple converging lines of evidence using different methodologies. So um, let's, let's look at this question using some other methods. Here's case five. Uh, This is a patient who had Parkinson's disease, uh, no psychiatric history whatsoever, 65 years old, Um, and for the treatment of her Parkinson's disease, an electrode, a deep brain electrode, was placed in the part of the reticular activating system that I'm showing you on the screen now. Uh, It's called the substantia nigra. Actually, the the target of the electrode was was a region a few millimeters higher called the subthalamic nucleus but the electrode went a little too deeply accidentally. And when the stimulation was switched on, this is what happened. Within five seconds, she fell into a suicidal depression. This patient with no psychiatric history, she she said, uh, you can see in the the bits uh, uh, highlighted in yellow, I'll just read the last bit. I'm fed up with life. I've had enough. I don't want to live anymore. I'm disgusted with life. Everything is useless always feeling worthless. I'm scared in this world. I'm tired, I want to hide in a corner. I'm crying over myself, of course, I'm hopeless. Why am I bothering you? And so on. Within five seconds uh, of uh, putting the electrode uh, into this part of the reticular activating system, what was produced was an intense emotional state. So this is a second line of evidence showing that um, stimulation of the deep brain stem structures known as the reticular activating system doesn't just switch lights on or off. uh, It it stimulates intense qualities and contents of consciousness, which we call affective. Uh, In this case, the affect of profound despair uh, and despondency, uh, uh, in a word, depression. So uh, that's the second line of evidence. Here's the third line of evidence. So there's the lesion evidence There's the deep brain stimulation evidence. Here is functional uh, uh, neuroimaging. This this method is called positron emission tomography. Uh, And what the red areas are showing is which part of the brain lights up uh, when the research participants are in these four intense emotional states. Sadness, uh, the red area is in the brainstem. Anger, the red area is in the brainstem. Happiness, uh, the red area is in the brainstem, plus one subcortical circuit going into the prefrontal lobes, which I'll show you in a minute. Um, And in the case of fear, likewise, uh, the the activation is in the brainstem. The cortex, by contrast, if you look at these images, is deactivated. Uh, The cool colors show reduced activation. The warm colors show increased activation. So that's a third method. Here's a fourth method, pharmacological Probes um, the, the 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 drugs that uh, form the mainstay of um, our uh, uh, common and garden psychiatric medications, um, things like um, uh, antidepressants, uh, which increase serotonin. Uh, not many people seem to realize that serotonin, uh, the source nucleus. Um, for serotonin, uh, or nuclei, or the RAFE nuclei, which are part of the reticular activating system. Uh, The same with dopamine. Uh, So Antidepressants act on the reticular activating system. Antipsychotics act on the reticular activating system. And the same applies to noradrenaline. So some uh, mainstream anti-anxiety drugs act on the the reticular activating system. Uh, So lesion evidence, deep brain stimulation evidence. Uh, positron emission tomography evidence uh, and psychopharmacological evidence all converge on the conclusion that feelings are actually generated in the brainstem, Uh, that uh, it's not just that when the cortex is gone, it looks as if uh, these kids are still conscious in an affective uh, sense of the word, Uh, but all of these other methods uh, confirm that affective uh, feeling states are generated not in the cortex, but the brain stem So this part of the brain, which uh, it's always been recognized since it was discovered, uh, is the is the foundation of consciousness. It's a necessary prerequisite for all other forms of consciousness because it activates the cortex. That's how the cortex, which otherwise does all its information processing unconsciously becomes conscious by being modulated by these arousal um, states coming from the reticular activating system, we now know that, I've just showed you the evidence for it, or at least I've just summarized it ever so briefly, uh, we now know that that, that, that brainstem arousal uh, is actually the basic form of consciousness itself, uh, that the, the foundational form of, of conscious experience is emotional and affective feeling. Now, here comes an interesting point. Sigmund Freud, uh, the discoverer of the unconscious, made this observation that it's surely of the essence of an emotion that we should be aware of it, that it should become known to consciousness. Thus, the possibility of the attribute of unconsciousness would be completely excluded as far as emotions, feelings and affects are concerned. Now, uh, I know this is a controversial statement. Uh, I'm quoting it because even Freud, the the first person to point out that uh, all of this cognition um, that has been the focus of our attempts to solve the hard problem of consciousness, all of the all of this stuff, this information processing contributed by the cortex, Freud was the first to observe that it can all go on in the dark that cognition is not only uh, can be unconscious, but for the most part is unconscious, as Kilstrom's article, uh, the review article that I showed you earlier uh, uh, um, um, about perception and and learning going on unconsciously uh, demonstrated. So even Freud, the discoverer of these facts, uh, even he uh, said, but feelings are different. Uh, Unlike cognition, which can go on unconsciously, feelings cannot go on unconsciously. Um, I said, I know it's controversial. Uh, and that's why I've highlighted the word feelings. As some people say, you can have unconscious emotions, you can have unconscious affects, but surely nobody could say you could have an unconscious feeling. I mean, how can you have a feeling that you don't feel it wouldn't be a feeling if you didn't feel it. Uh, and this is not just a play on words. Because remember, I've just showed you the evidence that the part of the brain that generates feelings is the part of the brain that generates consciousness itself. It is the foundational font, the source uh, of all consciousness. This is my claim. Uh, So think again about what Chalmers said, Uh, I quoted uh, two statements from him earlier on. And uh, what he's saying here, uh, basically boils down to the same thing. He says, there's no cognitive function, such that we can say in advance that explanation of that function will automatically explain experience think again about what I said about Mary uh, is the, no matter how much she understands about the function of vision, it will not explain in advance uh, why uh, there is something it is like to experience vision. Now, in light of everything else I've said to you since I introduced you to Thomas's hard problem, everything I've said to you about affect, and everything I've said to you about the brain stem, as opposed to the cortex. Look at what happens if you change what Chalmers is saying here. He says there's no cognitive function such that we can say in advance that explanation of that function will automatically explain experience. But would he have said the same thing if he is talking about affects? Can you say there is no affective function such that we can say in advance that explanation of that function will automatically explain experience? I'm saying yes, there is the function of feeling. If you give a mechanistic account uh, of, of 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 how and why uh, f- f- feeling functions, uh, then the, the the account of the function of feeling would have to explain why feeling feels like something. Because that's the whole point of feeling. The whole point of feeling is to feel it. The thing that feeling does it's the function that it performs uh, is to enable us to feel pleasant and unpleasant uh, 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 qualities of various kinds. So uh, this leads me to uh, the main conclusions of my paper. What is the function of feeling? Well, in a word, it's homeostatic. Now this is a simple little diagram of how homeostasis works. Uh, We have a settling point of where we need to be. We have multiple needs. For example, uh, in terms of uh, uh, energy supplies, uh, in terms of um, uh, temperature, uh, in terms of uh, uh, hydration, uh, in terms of uh, uh, oxygen, uh, 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 in relation to carbon dioxide and so on. Uh, In relation to all of these basic needs, uh, there is a settling point. There's a, a a range within which we have to remain, which is viable for us. And if we move outside of that range, which is marked by the red on this diagram, the red arrow, then there's a demand for work, we have to do something. Um, And that green word prediction um, is what we uh, need to do, we have to have some algorithm that says, uh, I've moved out of my viable blood pressure range. uh, Therefore, I need to do the following, I need to slow down my heart rate, and I need to increase Uh, my, uh, I need to dilate my my blood vessels. And that's the work uh, that needs to be done, marked in blue, uh, to get me back to my settling point, back to my viable uh, blood pressure range. Um, I've put this all into words, of course, we don't think these things, I better do X, Y, and Z, these things happen reflexively. So this has nothing to do with feeling. Feeling is an extended form of homeostasis. Um, and uh, that's illustrated by the new slide on the screen now. The demand for work uh, is now felt as an unpleasant an unpleasant feeling. Uh, and the, the, the result of the work, the, the work that takes us back towards our settling point uh, is, uh, is, is, now, uh, is now indicated with, uh, by the word uh, pleasure. So what feeling does, um, is it enables us to know how we're doing in terms of our need to be within a certain range. Um, the, if we've moved out of that range, we feel unpleasure. And if we are moving back toward that range, we feel pleasure. Uh, this is what feeling is for. And why we need feeling is because there are situations in which the prediction that I spoke of earlier, the prediction uh, is not available we are not in a predicted or predictable situation. Rather, we're in a state of uncertainty. If you're in a state of uncertainty, and you do not have uh, a pre programmed algorithm as to what to do in that situation, this is where feeling comes into its own. Uh, You can now act voluntarily, Uh, you can move one way or the other, making choices. um, And your feeling state will tell you whether you've made a good choice or a bad one. Imagine um respiratory control let's take respiratory control it's normally automatic Uh, it functions unconsciously you're not aware of your need to breathe you just do so reflexively Uh, but that's because it's also predictable now you move into an emergency situation imagine you're in a burning building uh, and you're in a carbon dioxide filled room Uh, you've never been uh, in a burning building before uh, let alone this particular one you have no idea what to do There is no available prediction, you have to feel your way through the problem. Uh, Shall I go up? Shall I go down? Well, try going up. Um, If you go up, what you find is that the carbon dioxide levels increase, uh, the oxygen levels decrease. uh, And the way you know that is it feels worse, the suffocation alarm, uh, the air hunger increases. uh, And so the feeling tells you that you're going the wrong way. Uh, You now change your mind. Uh, and you go downstairs instead, uh, and the opposite happens. Now the feeling of relief, uh, as you experience uh, the oxygenation increasing, uh, tells you this is the right way to go. That's how feeling works. This is what feeling adds uh, to the automatic uh, 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 predictions um, that function reflexively. Uh, They underwrite choice, uh, and choice where there's a good and a bad option a right or a wrong way to go. Uh, The way in which the organism experiences this is through feelings. Feelings convey the deepest value system of us living things, which is uh, uh, that it is good to survive and bad not to. Pleasurable feelings tell us we are going to survive. And unpleasurable feelings tell us if we continue along this path, uh, it will lead to our demise. Um, So that's what feeling does. And I say again, it underwrites choice, uh, a choice where there's a good and a bad has to be uh, based in a value system. And the value system, uh, the homeostatic value system is that it is good to be in the range uh, that is viable for your continued existence and bad not to be. And the enormous advantage that feeling provides is it enables us to do so in unpredicted, novel situations, which are far from rare in nature. So that's the mechanism. Uh, I, I remember, Chalmers said there's no mechanism that if you could explain that, that if you could uh, that in advance you could say that explaining this will explain why it feels like something. I've just told you uh, a mechanism that explains why we feel, um, and it clearly is not something outside of science. It clearly is not something outside of the ordinary causal matrix of things. And so I think we have begun to address this question. Uh, Why and how is there something it is like to be an organism, something it's like for the organism? The question is very different uh, when you look at it, uh, not in terms of visual experience or visual information processing, uh, but rather affects uh, and what they're there for and what they do. Uh, Clearly, uh, the, the answer to this question, it no longer looks so mysterious. Why and how is there something it's like to be an organism, something it's like for the organism? When it comes to feelings, the question looks rather different. So I told you that the mechanism of feeling is homeostatic. Um, Around the time uh, that all of this was falling into place, um, I read a paper by this chap whose name appears in the bottom right corner of the screen, Carl Friston, who was formulating in mathematical lawful terms, um, how homeostasis works. And uh, I don't want you to be alarmed by all of the Uh, all of the the mathematics on the screen here. Uh, Let me just talk you through it uh, in in very simple terms. Look at the image, the drawing, the diagram in the middle. Um, Every homeostat uh, has what we we call an effector uh, and a receptor and a control center. The effector is simply the action part, it does something. Um, And the receptor is the sensory part, it senses something. And the control center uh, is where the predictions are made as to what must be done. So you're sensing your temperature, your control center tells you what you must do, and then you do something through the effector uh, in order, the work, uh, you do that in order to bring you back to your predicted uh, viable uh, thermodynamic range. Temperature, uh, respiratory control, um, energy balance, um, hydration, all of those things I mentioned earlier. That's how it works. So, the letter Q in the diagram, the internal states, that's where the control center is. This is where the predictions are, are executed, are generated. The letter M uh, is the effector, the active part, which then acts on the outside world. And then the letter si- the letter phi, sorry, at the top, uh, where, where, where it says sensory states. Uh, that is where the, the 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 receptor is at sensing how you're doing. So it's a circular thing um, that the control center Q uh, predicts if I do such and such through the effector M, uh, then I will experience I will sense such and such change uh, in 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 fine my sensory states of my temperature, and then Bob's your uncle. I'm back to where I need to be. Uh, that's how this works. Um, now, what uh, Tristan and I wrote about in this paper, trying to bring feeling, uh, this extended form of homeostasis into natural science, was simply uh, by uh, 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 explaining the role of this thing called precision, uh, marked by the uh, the letter omega at the bottom of the screen. Um, and I'll now explain to you how that works. The... The control center makes a prediction, has a prediction that if I do such and such, then I will experience such and such change in my sensory state, and it will bring me back to my viable bounds. Uh, What if it does not, if it does not you register an error, that is what is that is what is indicated by the E in the diagram I've now I've now explained all the terms, that is an error signal. And if there's an error signal, then you use the error to update. Your, your predictive model, uh, you, because clearly your prediction was in error. Uh, the, the system thought, the system predicted if I do such and such, uh, then it will change my temperature range uh, in the desired uh, uh, manner, and I will return uh, to the sensory state that is viable for me. If that does not happen, the error signal changes the predictive model, which now generates a new prediction, which takes account of the error. Uh, and then uh, the process continues until the error signal is reduced. This, uh, and, and the error signal being reduced means that the predictive model has been updated. Uh, it is more, it, it has taken account of how things actually work. Um, it, it, is, it is more uh, able to uh, do its job, which is to keep the system going. Uh, and precision uh, uh, is, is where affect comes into that picture. Uh, remember what I said earlier, that if things are going wrong, it feels bad, and if things are going well, it feels good in terms of am I moving further away from my viable bounds or am I moving closer towards them? So it basically is is, uh, modulating your confidence in your prediction as opposed to the error signals. So uh, if things are are going as predicted, that's good. Uh, You have increasing confidence in your predictions. Uh, if things, if uncertainty prevails, that's bad, Uh, and you have decreasing uh, confidence in your predictions and increasing confidence in the error signals. And this is how feeling um, uh, modulates the updating of the predictive model and learning from experience. Uh, Think of what I said earlier about uh, a, a being in a burning building, you've never been in that situation before. Once you have, and you've learned how to survive in it through feeling your way through the problem in the way that I explained, uh, the next time uh, you, you will have predictions as to how, uh, how to survive in that situation. So this is how the predictive model is updated on the basis of error signals, and error signals have everything to do with feelings in the re- in the way I've just described. Uh, Errors, that is to say, bad predictions, that is to say, moving further away from your viable bounds just is bad for you. And feelings tell you uh, so that you can change attack uh, 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 here and now. uh, And in this way, save lives, save your life, uh, which is rather important. So uh, to to put flesh onto those theoretical bones uh, in the last uh, eight minutes uh, of my presentation, um, let me try to pack in one further case. Uh, this is case six. This is a man um, who uh, is Mr. S. Um, and he had a tumor in the area you can see uh, on the scan. Um, it was a, a olfactory sheath meningioma pushing on his, um, well, I won't go into all the details. The point is this tumor needed to be removed. And it was, uh, but unfortunately in the process, there was a hemorrhage uh, and the, the, the uh, an artery s- supplying the basal forebrain nuclei. Uh, marked on the screen now um, that, that artery was was accidentally taken uh, and uh, he bled into that region and as a result uh, he woke up despite having had the tumor successfully removed uh, he now had damaged basal forebrain nuclei uh, which 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 put him in what is called a confabulatory amnesic state that is to say he was no longer able to remember from one minute to the next uh, what was what had happened, um, and uh, the, that, that's the amnesia, the confabulatory part of it is he also didn't realize that he didn't know what had happened. He thought he did know what had happened, and he was drawing up memories which were, in fact, uh, not veridical. Um, he had false uh, beliefs about what had just happened. So he was confabulating. He was telling himself uh, uh, quasi-delusional stories about what had just happened. So I tried to treat this patient. I saw him uh, every day, six days a week, same time, same place um, in, in my outpatient clinic. Uh, it was here in London. Uh, and um, every day he didn't know who I was, didn't know he'd met me before because of his amnesia and because of his confabulations. He thought he didn't know who I was and that he had met me before, but he thought um, that I was somebody other than who I really am. So he frequently thought I was a fellow engineer. He was an electronic engineer. He thought I too was an engineer. We were working on some problem together. Or he thought that I was a client of his, bringing some engineering uh, problem to him to resolve. Uh, He also frequently thought we were schoolmates together, um, that we were on the same rugby team, that we had just played a game, we were having a beer. Well, I suppose it would have been university mates. Um, And he also thought that we were on the same rowing team. So these were the sorts of things he imagined. uh, that he, he thought he knew me uh, from these contexts. On the tenth session, um, which is the one I'm going to report to you, uh, I went to the waiting room to fetch him, uh, and he touched this huge craniotomy scar on his head and said, "Hi, Doc." So this was progress. For the first time uh, uh, in, in 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 the ten sessions I'd seen him, uh, he was associating me with the wound on his head, uh, and I was now called Doc. Uh, so. Uh, it, it seemed as if there were the, there was the beginnings uh, of, a, of an awareness uh, as to what 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 was going on, who I am, what had happened to him. Uh, now I'm going to report to you what happened in the, the that session. Uh, but before I do so, I want you to I want to pause for a moment and ask you to imagine that you are Mr. S. How would you feel? Uh, you suddenly realize something's happened to your head. you got a huge scar. Uh, 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 across your skull. Uh, and uh, you can't remember what's happened a few minutes ago. And you don't know where you are. And who is this guy? Um, he seems to be a doctor. Uh, I wonder, was he the doctor who did this operation on my head, which seems to have ended so badly. just, just sort of imagine that you were him. This is the part uh, of the story that we uh, in the neurological sciences tend to neglect the subjective feeling state of our patients. Um, I want to tell you just two more things about this patient. He had had two other operations in the past. Uh, one was a, a, a small operation on his heart. He had an arrhythmia which was successfully treated uh, with a pacemaker. The other was he had terrible problems with his teeth, and he had eventually had, had the, the, the problems successfully uh, uh, treated by the, the, the surgical implantation of these, uh, you know, these dental implants. So that comes up in the session. I'm just going to read you the first few minutes of the session. Actually, probably just a couple of minutes. I said to him as we entered my consulting room and as we sat down, I said, you touched your head when we met in the waiting room. I was trying to keep that, that insight, that glimmer of insight going. And he said, I think the problem is that a cartridge is missing. We, must, we, we just need the specs. What was it, a C49? Should we order it? So I said to him, what does a C49 cartridge do? He says, memory, it's a memory cartridge, a memory implant. But I never really understood it. In fact, I haven't used it for a good five or six months now. By the way, the operation was 10 months previously. He says, I haven't used it for a good five or six months now. It seems we don't really need it. It was all chopped away by a doctor. What's his name? Dr. Solms, I think. But it seems I don't really need it. The implants work fine. By the way, I was not the surgeon. Um, This is a mix up of his. He says, I say to him, you're aware that something's wrong with your memory, but and he interrupts me, he says, Yes, it's not working 100%. But we don't really need it. It was just missing a few beats. The analysis showed there was some C or CO9 missing. Denise, his wife, Denise brought me here to see a doctor. What's his name again, Dr. Solms or something. And he did one of those heart transplant things and now it's working fine. Never misses a beat. So I say to him, which was my attempt, genuine attempt to interpret what was going on. I said, you're aware that something's amiss. Some memories are missing. And of course, that's worrying. You hope I can fix it, like those other doctors fix the problems with your teeth and your heart. But you want it so much that you're having difficulty accepting it's not fixed already. So he says, Oh, I see. Yes, it's not working 100%. Touches his head. He said, I got knocked on the head. Went off the field for a few minutes, but it's fine now. I suppose I shouldn't go back on. But you know me, I don't like going down. So I asked Tim Noakes, who's a famous sports physician. He said, so I asked Tim Noakes because I've got the insurance, you know, so why not use it? And he said, sorry, so why not use it? Why not go to the best? And he said, fine, play on. So I'll break off the, um, I hope that you can see uh, the role of feelings in all of this. Um, He knows something has happened to his head. He knows there's been an operation. He knows something has happened to his memory, but he keeps changing it so that, uh, yes, something's missing, something to do with memory, but you just need to order it. You can just buy another one. Or, you know, well, actually, you don't even need it. Turns out you don't need this memory cartridge. And yeah, I've had an operation, but it's fine. Never misses a beat. He confuses the operation to his brain uh, with these other operations. The implants work fine. Uh, The the, the pacemaker works fine. Uh, And something's happened to my head, yes, but it's just a light biff on the head, you know. I've just gone off the field. Um, And it's not a neurosurgeon I need to consult, but a sports physician. And what is more, the best one money can buy, and he says, play on. So you see how, how he distorts uh, how the, the the feeling state, the panicky anxiety, which I imagine he must be feeling as he's de- gra- gradually aware of what's happened to him. How he turns it all. So, um, you know, on the screen here, just to remind you of what I was, I'm, I'm trying to put some flesh onto these bones. His predictive model tells him. Uh, the, 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 that he's just kind of a sports field. Uh, that he's that he's uh, that he just needs to order this missing part. Uh, you know that you don't really need it, um, etc. That he's just had heart trans heart uh, imp- uh, pacemaker and so on. All of these predictions, uh, the evidence uh, is clearly uh, contradicting everything. Uh, all of those predictions are wrong. In fact, he's got a scar across the top of his head. In fact, he can't remember a thing. In fact, he doesn't know who the hell the sky in front of him is and so on. The error signals uh, coming in are the, the precision in those signals, the confidence in those signals uh, is abnormally reduced. Remember that the precision, the omega at the bottom, uh, the thing that modulates affect, uh, that, he, that he up he, he increases his confidence in his predictions Uh, down-regulates his confidence in the error signals, in this way sticks with his beliefs, false as they are. Um, And I just wanted to show you there a little bit of how feeling, uh, as those of you who psychotherapists know this anyway, uh, how feeling runs the show. How our consciousness in this extreme pathological case, uh, where I can show mechanistically how it happens, um, this is where feelings fit into the ordinary causal matrix of things. Feelings uh, are not surplus to requirements. Uh, Consciousness is not some epiphenomenon that doesn't do any work, Um, I've tried to illustrate. Obviously, I've just showed you one little case snippet. Uh, We've done a lot of research on that. Here's a a range of papers where we've shown, we've demonstrated empirically uh, that these confabulations are wishful, that they're regulated by feelings, uh, that the purpose of the confabulations Uh, is to make things feel better for the patient. But of course, it's highly pathological to do so. Uh, If you don't update your predictive model in light uh, of the error signals, uh, you're deluding yourself, uh, and ultimately it ends in tears. Uh, If it were not for the fact that people like us look after patients like this, they wouldn't survive. So there you have it. I've come to the end of my time. Try to pack an enormous amount in. I hope I've at least given you some indication um, of the way I would go about answering this question, why is the performance of these functions accompanied by experience? Why doesn't all this information processing go on in the dark, free of any inner feel? But of course, I've only been able to provide you with a clue. Uh, For a fuller answer, do please read my book, uh, which is on the screen right now. Thanks very much.
0: Mark, thanks so much for a brilliant presentation. Everybody, we're going to take a five minute break now um, and then we'll come back in about five minutes and we'll have the Q&A with Mark. So if you've got any questions, if you want to just write them in the chat bar on the right hand side, then we'll ask uh, Mark a selection of those questions. Okay, Um, welcome back. So I suppose maybe a good place to to get started here would be, you know, a lot of our audience are mental health professionals and they, they do one on one work with clients. What would you say are the main practical implications of your theory on that should maybe inform their practice going forward?
1: Um, well, gosh, that is an enormous question. So let me first of all just say to reassure our audience that um, I, I, I'm i not uh, some sort of uh, uh, alien species as far as you're concerned, um, I, in my uh, frustration with my own field, uh, with the the, the absence of the mind, uh, the, the lack of psyche in neuropsychology. I actually trained as a psychoanalyst um, uh, uh, in, the, in the late 80s and early 90s. So I'm, I'm very familiar with the psychotherapeutic um, world. But it's, it's a very big question, you know, in terms of, so the, 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 obvi- the obvious uh, take-home message is, you know, uh, feelings are what matters. Um, that in order to understand uh, whether things are going badly or well for a patient, you know, use feelings as your as your um, uh, uh, thermometer, as it were. But of course, as I said, that's not telling you something you don't know. It is telling something that to my colleagues, my neuroscientific colleagues that they don't know. But the next thing to say is that um, we have multiple homeostats. Uh, that is to say, you know, feeling, uh, look at the bodily ones. Uh, hunger feels different from thirst, feels different from sleepiness, feels different from a distended bladder. You know, uh, these are all affects, bodily affects, and each one of them feels different because the need behind them is a different need. You need to know what's going badly, what needs attention, uh, and what's going well. Now, the same applies to emotions. Uh, if we have emotional needs. Fear is just the feeling that your need for safety. Um, is, uh, is is not being met. Um, uh, rage is just uh, 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 an indication that your need to have frustrating impediments removed from your way um, is not being met. Um, separation distress, panic uh, and despair. You know, you need loved ones and, and, and your caregivers in close proximity. If they're not, that's an error signal. Things are going wrong so uh, that leads me to the last thing I can say in an abbreviated answer to such a big question which is that remember then we have predictions uh, I told you that the predictive model makes predictions as to what you must do to meet that need so if a feeling if a patient is suffering from a particular type of feeling it means there's a particular emotional need that's not being met which means that their predictions as to how to meet that need uh, are uh, are not hitting the mark Uh, so the main task, if I may put it absolutely simplistically, uh, the main task of psychotherapy is to help our patients to find better predictions as to how to meet uh, the emotional needs which are not being met as indexed by the feelings that they suffer from. I hope that begins to indicate my way of thinking about that.
0: Uh, that's, a, that's a great answer. You've just sort of condensed the field of psychotherapy and the the 500 different approaches down to one one sentence. So I, I like that. Um, okay, we've got one here from Janet. Um, should a carer for a person who's confabulating support the confabulation, or is it better to try to increase their relationship with objective reality? Because well, this might uh, cause them to be more upset.
1: Yes, yes. So, I mean, as you can see from the research that I... Uh, uh, quickly um, flashed on the screen toward the end of my presentation. This is something that I that I am very interested in. Um, uh, in a nutshell, uh, let, let me say two things. First of all, um, it makes a big difference to understand what the mechanism of confabulation is. Um, if you if you understand that this, these are not just random errors that the patient is generating, that they are tendentious, they motivated. The patient is trying, and our evidence, our our studies show this, the patient is trying to redraw reality uh, so as to make themselves feel better. Uh, In in other words, they're kidding themselves. Uh, In the short term, it feels better uh, to deny um, the the, the terrible predicament that they're in. Um, And this is the mechanism underpinning uh, confabulation. So understanding that that's the mechanism uh, informs what you do about it. Uh, So you have to take account of the feelings and of the emotional uh, job that the confabulation is doing. And the approach that we take is the one that I illustrated ever so badly in that little snippet, because obviously, when you do things badly, it's it's clearer uh, what goes wrong. Um, the, the, The Confronting the patient in that way doesn't help. But understanding that what they're trying to do is to manage terrible anxieties. Um, and 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 uh, guiding them accordingly. Uh, that, that's the me- that's the method that we found works. So that's the first of the two things I want to say in response to this question. The other thing I want to say is that the basic ethic uh, underpinning that that uh, work uh, is that it's always better, not only for these patients but for all patients. It's always better to face the facts, uh, to, to uh, especially the unwelcome facts. Um, why? It's because they're there, you know, you can you can make as if they're not there, but they are there and they're going to have their effects. So to deny facts which are there um, is to deny yourself the opportunity of dealing with those facts uh, and altering uh, the impact that they have upon you. They will have the same impact because they're there. Uh, uh, if you fail to acknowledge them, that impact is, uh, is, 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 is inevitable. Uh, if you acknowledge that they're there, there's something you can do about them. So the approach we take, with uh, the very, which very successfully we take with confabulating patients, to take account of the fact that, uh, that they're denying the facts because they feel so overwhelming, uh, taking account of that, intervening uh, in, 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 in um, titrated dosages, introducing reality. An uh, unwelcome reality. I've just you you very ha- nicely kindly said that I just reduced the whole of psychotherapy to a pithy formulation. I think you know I could do so uh, here in a similar vein and say that the whole of psychotherapy is metaphorically speaking taking your patient by the hand, saying, "Take a deep breath. You know, let's look at these facts. Um, to, you know, because ultimately that really is the only way in which we
0: can deal with them." Thanks. Wow. Okay. Um, next, we've got one from Bradley. Um, are we living in an era of narcissism, which therefore renders homeostatic settings as grandiose beyond realization? And is this perhaps a slack we can never gather without causing more harm than good?
1: Well, that's a very important question. Um, I think that we have to distinguish between the feelings. Um, which are telling you whether you're going in the right or the wrong direction, uh, and the, 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 the which is the work, uh, the demand for work, or the work that needs to be done, um, uh, the, uh, which leads to the actual settling point, the actual meeting of the need. Um, so, so let me let me uh, uh, take an example. Um, uh, I, I mentioned separation distress earlier. The reason that a little child, or actually any mammal, or bird for that matter, we all have the same mechanism, we all need to attach as mammals and birds because we can't care for ourselves. Um, So we need to find somebody uh, who's who's likely to care for us and attach to them. Uh, And uh, the the feeling of separation distress tells you um, your caregivers not not uh, within sight, you know, and you better search uh, for so you cry, mama, and you look for her. Uh, The feeling the panicky feeling tells you do this work, find find your caregiver otherwise you've had it mate uh, you know that's that's the underlying mechanism uh, the 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 brain chemical that mediates that is is mu opioids low mu opioid levels uh, uh, make you feel panicky and distressed uh, it, it increased uh, you when you find mummy you find the caregiver the opioid levels go up and the distress goes down that's the mechanism so you can short circuit that rather than Doing the work of finding your caregiver, you can just shoot up heroin. Uh, you'll have the feeling um, uh, that you know life's a beach, and uh, you know this is, this is. I'll just chill out here with my with my heroin, uh, and I'll have the feeling as if I have now um, you know got uh, somebody who loves me and cares about me and looks after me and wants to be with me. But it's not true. That's the nub of the matter. Narcissistic. Uh, illusions are illusions. Um, the, 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 using the extreme example I've just given, uh, that, that that ends in tears. Um, it, it ends in death. Um, it, you you actually have to really do the work um, of finding a caregiver. Um, that, that's the work that's demanded. And so the problem of narcissism is an avoidance of the reality principle, uh, as, as as Freud called it. You know, you, it's, it's what is narcissistic and omnipotent is to delude yourself that you can get something for nothing. Um, but that's not how homeostasis works. So uh, I, I want again to make this the main point I'm trying to make I say again, I'm not sure I did make it clearly. The main point is that the feeling is not an end in itself. The feeling is a guiding of the underlying work that's needed to meet your needs. And there's no way to meet your needs except through engaging with reality and, and doing the work that's necessary. Um, and so feelings are a wholesome thing, uh, but like anything else, they can be hijacked and short-circuited. Uh, and that is, a, that is a slippery slope, but it's not the same thing as homeostasis. It's a it's a cheating uh, of, of, of the, it's a short-circuiting of the mechanism um, and cheating reality always ends badly.
0: Um, those are some wise words, Mark. Thank you very much. Um, our next question here from Sam. I suppose it's in a similar similar ballpark. Um, if these homeostasis circuits are pleasure-seeking, feeling-wise, then isn't this overall detrimental, given that so much damaging behavior in our culture is pleasure-seeking and instant gratification rather than seeking the discomfort of working towards long-term health-seeking goals? Um, we just act on instant pleasure-seeking feelings to return us to a temporary state of yeah,
1: so uh, th- you're right. It's the same question uh, in, in a in a different uh, form, uh, and so my answer w- would be the same. Let me just emphasize a different part of what I was saying. You must remember that pleasurable feelings are not the goal. The goal is satiation. The goal is actually meeting the underlying need. So, so if, if feelings predict. Feel, you know, if, if things, if, if you're feeling more and more uh, uh, scared, it means you are, you know, you, you're you in danger and uh, you, whatever you're doing isn't working because the danger is increasing. Um, the, the, the feeling of relief from uh, fear, the feeling of increasing security and safety uh, is a feeling that I am escaping the danger. Uh, But, but, but ultimately, what you have to do is escape the danger to no longer be in danger at all. And so the feeling then goes off the radar screen. It's not it's like, um, you know, hunger, you don't eat and eat and eat until you pop doesn't feel better and better and better. You know, eventually you've had enough, that means you're, you're back into in the settling point. So feelings are not the we're not looking for pleasure uh it's it's pleasure tells us what we're doing uh, is heading in the right direction uh, but it's only once you've actually met the need that you that you reach satiation uh, and that this compulsive driven quality that that you uh, uh, i think you said sam was his or her name uh, is alluding to um it, it, it disappears so the mechanism of homeostasis is not to be this it, it, the aim of it is satiation which is the meeting of the underlying need uh, it's not a thrill-seeking, pleasure-seeking, a quick-fix mechanism by any means. It is the fundamental mechanism whereby all living things stay alive, uh, all, even plants. You know, homeostasis a Homeostasis is, uh, is a profoundly wholesome and good thing. It's got nothing to do with narcissism.
0: Okay, okay. Um, next one's from Donna. Don asks, "What is happening in the brain when a person continues to repeat self-harmful acts, which prevent them from achieving homeostasis and which threaten their survival?"
1: Um, well, uh, again, these are big. When any any question that has to do with psychiatry or psychopathology, you know, you, you're a, you're a mug if you try and answer it in a few sentences. Um, so, so I'll be a mug and try and answer it in a few sentences because in this format, you know, what, what choice does one have? But so, so let me just distill it down to its its absolute essence. Remember what I said—that um, we we need to meet these needs. We ha- all of us absolutely are required to meet our emotional needs. Uh, there's no there's no choice in the matter. Um, it, it, and and little children have every bit uh, as big needs as you and I do. You know we're born with these emotional needs, um, and uh, we have. We, but when we are children, we, we're not very well equipped. Uh, at, at, to, at meeting them because we're small, we're ignorant of the ways of the world, we are dependent, um, you know, it, it, so, so when you lay down your first predictions, remember, this whole thing is about a predictive model of how to meet our needs in the world, the great task of life is to formulate predictions as to how to meet uh, our, our needs, both bodily and emotional ones. The formative predictions are laid down when we're less well-equip, least well equipped, least uh, to, well to, equipped to do so. So we lay down many predictions in childhood, uh, which are not the best, uh, and then they become automatized. And there's a whole long story as to why and how it happens that they become automatized. But in a nutshell, uh, I'm speaking of the best solutions a child can come up with, uh, which then become automatized are not the best solutions you might be able to come up with if you can rethink things later on, when you're no longer in the position that you were in. When you were little, we're not all of us burnt in, born into the best of circumstances. So, if you, for example, uh, you 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 need a keg, somebody to love you and look after you, um, your caregiver is, is distracted is got other things on her plate. Uh, you know, it's, 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 you're not the only problem in, 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 in her life. Um, and the only way you get her attention is to is to injure yourself or for things to go badly wrong. Uh, there's a you, you learn by chance when things go catastrophically wrong, then you get mom's attention. So your prediction becomes well in order to in order to get the attention I crave. Um, I, I, you know, Let me damage myself. Um, And that's the best you can do, perhaps, in those circumstances. And this becomes your go-to solution. Remember, I told you I have to be overly simplistic. I'm trying to give you the basic principle. The principle is the child then lays down a prediction like that, something like that. Um, And the task of the psychotherapist is to identify you're doing this thing over and over again. Um, why it's meant to achieve something, it's meant to meet this need. And spot the mistake, it's not meeting that need. So perhaps you're wanting to rethink uh, how you go about meeting that need. That's the kind of basic framework within which uh, I would begin to address questions about uh, self harming behaviors. It is a prediction um, which needs to be uh, rethought, a prediction as to how an emotional need can be met, which once Perhaps in desperation was the best you could come up with, uh, but uh, now um, in, in in different circumstances and with the help of a psychotherapist and the, and all that goes with the, uh, that therapeutic environment, uh, thinking up, uh, thinking your way through, feeling your way through the problem, and coming up with better solutions.
0: A hundred percent. So it it sounds like we develop these strategies. that we think are going to meet our needs from a very very young age because we don't really know any better and at the time these we think they're adaptive but as we continue to do them later in life they increasingly become maladaptive and the job of a psychotherapist then is to find more adaptive ways to meet that need in a a way that's going to lead to long term health and well being is that fair to say?
1: I mean, in a nutshell, that's correct, what you've just said. I, I told you about automatization and I said there's a long story there that there's no time to go into. I'll just say one thing about that story, which is that our memory systems, remember memory Memory is, memories are about the past, but they're for the future. Memories are for prediction. On the basis of past experience, uh, of what happened, um, when I find myself in such a situation again in the future, what shall I do? So memories are about the past, but they're for the future. Memories are basically for prediction. So um, the memory systems of the brain, they're two very broad categories. Uh, the one we call non-declarative, uh, which is unconscious memories, which are absolutely automatized. And the other we call declarative, which are predictions that can be brought back to mind uh, and revised. De- declarative just means can be, can be thought about. Uh, non-declarative means can't be thought about, can only be enacted. Uh, the the non-declarative predictions, we act them, we do them, we don't think them and remember them. So uh, why I'm saying all of that is that in the first two to three years of life, the declarative memory systems are not matured. So all of the predictions you laid down in the first two to three years are of the non-declarative type. Uh, Many others are automatized after your first two to three years, but I'm just giving this one it's sort of point of entry into the into our understanding of these different uh, predictive systems, and things like your attachment, uh, w- w- the, you, you, your first and uh, formative attachment is made in the first six months, uh, which is well below two to three years. So you know, that's an, a, a pivotal example of, of how we come up with the best solutions we can at that time, even if we could come up with better ones later, the solutions are no longer in the form of thoughts that we can think and and reflect upon. They're in the form of of predictions which we enact. um, And that's a very important part of how psychopathology arises.
0: Very interesting. Um, We've only got a couple of minutes left, Mark. Uh, Maybe just one more question. Uh, panpsychism is making a lot of waves in consciousness studies at the moment. I'm just curious about your thoughts on on that theory of consciousness.
1: Okay, so for those members of the audience who are not familiar with the term, panpsychism basically is the claim that everything is conscious. Uh, that it, it may not be to an equal degree, uh, but 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 the all all uh, physical matter has a subjective experiential side to it. That's panpsychism, um, and my view is not a panpsychist view. Um, In my book, what I try to explain is what kind of system, uh, there is something it is like to be certain kinds of systems, but not other kinds of systems. So for example, I said that your uh, mobile phone uh, has a memory function, it has perceptual functions, you know, that's how it takes photographs and and stores uh, the information, how it recognizes that's a face, you know, and so on. So all of this information processing goes on in your mobile phone. uh, But to me, the evidence is overwhelming that mobile phones don't experience anything. There is not something it is like to be a mobile phone. My book is about what is the difference between a mobile phone and a brain uh, in terms of how it goes about processing this information. And the heart of the matter is homeostasis. We living creatures are trying to keep surviving. The whole basic mechanism is, everything, all of this information processing is in the service of our own continued existence. Uh, 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 and, and, uh, and as I said, in my talk, and it's really the key take home message, as the Americans say, um, is that this is mediated by feeling, feeling, uh, it tells you how well you're doing, uh, in terms of this task of surviving, uh, of continuing to exist, which isn't this existential imperative, is what is is what gives rise to valence, the goodness and badness of how things what my own state is. And I think that only things which have that survival imperative, uh, and there's a lot more besides I'm just giving you the the essence of it, Uh, that feelings arise from uh, uh, the system, knowing its own state, uh, a a system which has a value system, uh, which which values its own continued existence. Um, And so a system that does not have those dynamics, uh, I, I don't think there's any reason to believe that, that, that they feel like anything. I, I want to say one last thing. Imagine the alternative. The alternative is uh, that, it, 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 you know, th- the universe came into existence long, long before life emerged. Um, and life emerged long, long, long before consciousness emerged. Um, the, 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 that alone um, is, a, is an argument for against panpsychism and for the view that, that out of the ingredients uh, of the non-conscious universe, uh, they evolved in a way that came to uh, arrange themselves in a particular fashion, uh, which, which then gave rise to sentience. The alternative is that consciousness existed uh, at the origin of the universe long before life uh, emerged. Uh, that sounds unhopefully to me, like the idea of God.
0: Okay. Okay. Um, well, Mark, thank you so much for, um, sharing some of your, your knowledge with us today. It's been an absolutely fascinating presentation and I've, I've enjoyed every minute of this, this Q and A session with you as well. Um, have you got any parting thoughts, um, or any where you would recommend people to go online? Definitely. Everyone get the book. Um, it's, I think it's, it's going to be huge. Um, but yeah, Mark, any par- parting thoughts here?
1: Yeah, well, if, if, uh, thank you first of all for inviting me. I've enjoyed this uh, conversation very much. Uh, I I, I could talk about it, as you probably gathered, I could talk about it all day. Don't know why anybody talks about anything else. Um, But but, uh, the uh, uh, if you're wanting to stay in touch with the the, the sort of thing that uh, I'm doing, then follow me on Twitter. I'm uh, not on Facebook, I only have my son and daughter and about two other people on Facebook, but on Twitter, Niall gave my uh, handle uh, at marks uh, uh, underscore souls. Uh, and uh, we we can keep in touch that way. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Fantastic, Mark. Okay, enjoy the rest of your weekend. You too. Thanks everybody for tuning in, and a huge thank you to Shani for helping out with customer support again today as well. Um, I'll see you guys all soon. Bye. This episode is sponsored by our upcoming day on conscious relationships online conference taking place on the 24th of April, 2022. This event will explore how to leverage insights from attachment theory, neurobiology, and behavioral science to become aware of and break the unconscious relationship patterns from your past so that you can start thriving in this area of your life. We'll have talks from three speakers on why secure relating is a skill that can be learned and how to heal the attachment wounds from your past to create deep and lasting relationships in the present that's from Alan Robarge. The second talk will be from Terry Real, and this is going to be on a science-based skill set for creating lasting intimacy. And the final talk will be from Logan Yuri, and it's going to be on how to use the latest behavioral science to find, build, and keep love. By attending live, you can interact with the speakers in the Q and A sessions, connect with like-minded participants during the conference, get CPD certification, and lifetime access to the recordings from the sessions. As a listener of this podcast, you can get a discount on your ticket if you go to bit.ly forward slash and use the discount code POD when registering. That's P-O-D, all one word, when registering.